1: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly atkins Store, Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. This week, we'll be discussing the 14th Amendment trials going on in Colorado and Minnesota, the Trump civil trial in New York, and the conviction of crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Also wanted to provide an alert to our listeners that among our merch available now is a brand new item, the Hashtag Sisters-in-Law Mug. Have you guys gotten your mugs yet?
2: They are great. You know, I drink coffee so much, I'm pretty convinced that if you, like, cut my arm open, I would bleed coffee at this point. But the Sisters-in-Law Mugs are great. They look good, and they're just the right size and shape. Highly recommended.
0: I
3: love it. I love using it. It makes me really happy to see.
0: Same here. I always feel very proud when I take a good sip of Joe out of my sister's-in-law mugs. So you guys should get one too. You can drink your coffee while you listen to us.
1: All right, well, I'm sipping a little coffee here as we talk. And um, one thing I wanted to uh, ask you folks, I saw this on Twitter and I chimed in, you know, Halloween has just passed. So it's kind of the season of scary movies and other kinds of things. And the question was, um, what scary movie terrified you as a child? And I knew the answer immediately. For me, it was the Amityville Horror. I don't know if you guys ever saw that, but whatever age I was when that came out, I was like just a little too young. And I saw it, you know, with my older sister and it was just terrifying. And one of the things about it is like, it's got this mood music with like little children singing, like humming in a high pitched sound. And we shared a bedroom and at night she knew I was scared when the lights went up. And she'd start singing that. That little hey, bars and she'd do the little thing like, stop, you're scaring me. No, Mom. but that oh that, to this day, so so scary. How about you guys? Did you have a scary movie that really put went over the went over the top
0: for you? Yeah, you know, I did Amityville's a good one because I didn't think I was scared by that movie, but they had um, this—the house in it had this very— Particular kind of art-shaped window. Yes, and whenever I see that window yes. in other houses, me it like too. sends a little
1: chill through me. Yes, it's like those like half moon things. Yeah, like oh, I know exact quarter moon. I know exactly yes. what you mean. Yes. Same. It's like ruin that whole arch, which is a lovely architectural it's feature. Beautiful, but I, I, but I'm I could just never like, live oh. in a house that has really never.
0: So <laughs> it was it was similar for me. So mm-hmm. my mom loved to this day loves scary movies, and I remember distinctly once I was walking into the the family room while she was watching. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> and it was right at the end where a woman goes up to Donald Sutherland basically to say, you know, oh, I'm still human and I know you are too, like... But he actually was a pod person and he turned and pointed to her and opened his mouth and this sound came out. And it was the most terrifying thing I had ever experienced. And I swear to goodness, same thing. To this day, Donald Sutherland, wonderful actor. He scares me. He's scary. And, I, you know, when I see him come up in a movie, it's like, oh, my goodness. Okay. It's just Donald Sutherland. It's okay. Um, brilliant actor. But, yeah, I'm, I'm scared of you, Donald. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> what about you, Joyce? Um, this is so embarrassing by comparison, but I was four or five when Bambi came out. Oh, <laughs> oh Bambi's scary. Oh, Bambi. We went to see it in the theater with my cousins and my mom and my granddad and my aunt and my uncle. And I was done when Bambi's mom died. Yeah. I cried so hard that my uncle had to very take sad. me out of the theater. To this day, <laughs> scariest movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Jill, Sorry. what about you? So,
3: I don't like the genre. So, I almost never, ever watch horror movies. One I actually liked and it came so highly recommended, I decided to see it was Get Out. And oh, that I don't was know. It's, oh, I yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's not exactly a horror movie kind in the genre well. you're talking yeah. about, but it, it is in that category. And I liked it. Mostly, I, do, I just don't watch it. I am hooked on a. British series called Silent Witness, where I have to close my eyes a lot because there's a lot of dead bodies and blood. That's it's about coroners um, or forensic pathologists, and so it, to me that's a horror series, even though it is definitely not, you know, listed as such. So that's you know, I'm I'm sort of fearless in a way, but I just don't enjoy fantasy, sci-fi, or horror movies. Oh, I'm going to add one other thing, which is my husband had to walk out of a movie with Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. In which fatal Attraction. Oh, fatal yeah. Fatal Attraction. The, I even know
1: the scene. Was it the rabbit? The rabbit yes, boiling. Was, absolutely <laughs> the rabbit. That's hideous. The rabbit. hideous scene. He literally left the movie theater. I'm with him. Yeah, that was hideous. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very squeamish when it comes to horror in
0: movies. Yeah, and I don't like well, harming good man. animals.
1: I like Michael even more than I already did. <laughs>
0: This week, hearings began in a pair of lawsuits seeking to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado and Minnesota. Jill, these lawsuits were brought on behalf of several voters in these states. And they claim that Donald Trump is barred from holding office by the 14th Amendment. And so explain to us what the legal case they have to make in these hearings in order to be successful? So let me start by saying that both Minnesota
3: and Colorado have specific statutes that allow this challenge, which is why the first two challenges are in those states. And I think I also should read at least the relevant words of the 14th Amendment uh, so that our audience understands what the hurdles will be. And the 14th Amendment says that no person shall be or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, if they have previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States or other things that aren't relevant here to the president, or if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So that's what the language that creates this possible hurdle in the same way that you have to be... 35 years old, and a natural-born citizen as a prelude to being on the ballot. But here, here are the questions. One, is an officer of the United States the president? And there is apparently some debate about it, although I think on that one it's pretty clear that the president is an officer. The second question is whether Mr. Trump's behavior on or before January 6th, constitutes engaging in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or the United States. And the third question is whether the clause is enforceable, whether an election official or the courts can deem a person ineligible, because there's no obvious enforcement laid out in the language of the 14th Amendment. Um, And then there's a couple of other questions, which is can the court decide this, or is it a uh, political question that courts don't get into? And another question is, even though they might be able to, even if they they can, should they do that? And um, so those are some of the key questions that will have to be resolved by the court. So the first question is, you know, should the court take the case at all, or is it too political? But all of these questions would Require some factual support, and the evidence is starting to be presented
0: yeah and and particularly that last point to you know not just can courts decide this should is something that's been on my mind a lot lately, but before we get into that, Barb, what did you think about some of the evidence and testimony? That's been presented so far. I watched a little bit of the Colorado trial, uh, which went on Monday through Wednesday, I guess, or hearing. I guess it's not a trial, it's a hearing. Um, And it reminded me a little bit of the January 6th hearings. You know, you had some of the same witnesses, some of the same evidence. They showed the video from January 6th. So what stood out to you? And do you think, based on these factors Jill laid out, that these uh, voters are making out a case here?
1: Yeah, you know, just from a fact perspective, and I agree with Jill, there are a lot of legal issues here about whether... this is the way to remove someone from a ballot, whether it should be that way in terms of democracy. But all that aside, just in terms of the case itself, I, you know, I thought the plaintiffs put on a compelling case. They had some of the police officers who were on the Capitol during the uh, uh, the attack. Uh, they had Congressman Eric Swalwell talk about how members of Congress thought they were worried about their safety based on what Donald Trump was tweeting during the attack. Um, and then they had some expert witnesses, I guess I would call them. One is a national security expert who said that Donald Trump absolutely could have deployed the National Guard without any request or permission from uh, the D.C. mayor. They had um, another professor who talked about political extremism and how um, the language that Trump used uh, you know, may have maintained plausible deniability but would have been heard by groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers as uh, language of incitement. Um, and then another who uh, talked about the 14th Amendment um, and about uh, the definition of insurrection includes any public use of force to prevent the execution of the law. So I thought they made a pretty compelling case. On the other side, you know, it was some of the same stuff we've heard before. Cash Patel said, um, you know, they they, they couldn't call up the National Guard without the mayor requesting it which I, I think the plaintiff had debunked um, they called you know some of the people who organized the rallies to say oh no this was all about free speech and um, and they even had um, somebody who, uh, a, a, a Colorado congressman, who said that he thought the whole January six committee's report was very one-sided. And uh, another Colorado Republican, a treasurer, who said it was all a false flag organized by Antifa. So I, I don't even <laughs> take those too seriously. Like, come on, really? That's your defense? I'm sorry, so I should have laughed out loud. Yeah, it's laughable. I mean, I think there's some serious questions here. And, and I think even a serious question as to whether this truly amounts to insurrection under the Constitution. And you know, Trump's lawyer said words to the effect of whatever Trump said that day, he himself did not go to the Capitol with a pitchfork. So does it require that or, you know, neither did um Stuart Rhodes, the oath keeper who was convicted of seditious conspiracy. No, he didn't enter the Capitol, but he was kind of the orchestrator of the whole thing. So I think it's some really interesting legal questions. You know, it hasn't really been addressed before in our country. And uh, I think we'll have to watch it play out.
0: Yeah, I think it raises some pretty interesting legal questions. Um, so, Joyce, What do you think of all this? And I I want—actually, I want all of your views on this. Is this the right way to challenge the prospect of another Trump presidency? I guess here is where that last question that Jill brought up, which is an important one. Even if courts can keep him off the ballot, should they? Do you think this is the right way to go?
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that's the central question— And and there's a good argument that this is about qualification. So just like you wouldn't let someone on the ballot who wasn't um, old enough to hold the office of president, you wouldn't let them on the ballot. Maybe you shouldn't let Trump on here. The problem for me is that that begs the question of whether Trump, in a formal legal sense— has committed insurrection. I mean, I think we all have that sense, right? That common sense notion that he played a role in inciting January 6th. The question though, is whether it's enough to formally charge him with insurrection. And to me, that's just the point. He hasn't been convicted, let alone charged with insurrection in court. And in the absence of clear rules to enact section three, there's no enacting legislation that would tell us how we would keep someone off the ballot. I think that as a practical matter, given the mood in the country, it's wise to let voters decide. Otherwise, we run the risk of making Trump even more of a political martyr than he already is. But let me, let me be candid and say I can see both sides of the argument here. I have confidence in the voters. I'm willing to let the voters decide. But there is a good argument that he's simply not fit to, to
3: be on the ballot. What do you think, Jill?
0: Do you think this is the right way to go? You know, I see as
3: a political matter the potential consequences and wonder. As a legal or constitutional matter, I think it is absolutely the right way. I do not see a difference between determining whether someone is a natural-born citizen. And if we go back to the Obama election, secretaries of state, were forced to make a decision because there were challenges, not in the same way that this is being made, but there there were questions raised about whether his birth certificate was legitimate. And so it required some discretion in their analysis of that in the same way that this would. I don't know that a court needs to be the one to determine whether this is true or not, but it certainly would be an added value. And I I think you know, if you go back to its original purpose, it was to prevent someone from doing again what they did after taking an oath and then trying to undermine the government they had taken an oath to. And I think that the evidence presented to this state is very clear that this was an effort to undermine our democracy and that he should be kept off the ballot because he will do it again. What about you, Barb?
1: Yeah, I you know, I hear uh, Joyce's argument, I hear Jill's argument. I think I would want to find, this is an extraordinary step to take. I think it is a potentially anti-democratic step to take, to remove someone from the ballot. I would much rather see Donald Trump rejected by the voters because then I think his loss is likely to be more widely accepted than if he is removed by a, by a judge or, you know, ultimately a Supreme Court decision. Um, but... Um, You know, it doesn't really suggest discretion. It doesn't really say if the judge feels like it or the judge may remove if they make a finding. So if there is a finding, I think it does require removal from the ballot. But I think I'd want to see a stronger link between Trump and the violence. We know he said some things that were inciting. We know he, um, what was the phrase Liz Cheney used? He summoned the crowd. He lit the fuse. Um, certainly he did all of those things with his tweet, come to Washington, we'll be wild. Um, All the things he said to undermine the election and cause people to believe that there had been fraud. Um, Let's march down to the Capitol, although he did say very peacefully. And then for 187 minutes, he just watched it burn, you know, and didn't do anything to stop it. And as the president, I think he has a duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and tell people to go home way before he did. But I think before I would say that he engaged in insurrection, which is the language that Jill read from the 14th Amendment, I think I want to find, I would want to hear that he um, had a direct link to the Proud Boys of the Oath Keepers, which may be the case. We've never mm. really had that resolved. You know, what was going on in that Willard Hotel war room between Roger Stone and Giuliani and mm-hmm. Mark Meadows and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. If you could link those up, that it, this was all a plot and that's why the violence was unleashed, I'd say, yeah, you got it. But- Without that, um, I think I'm just reluctant to to take this extraordinary step of removing him from the ballot.
0: Yeah, I think my concern, aside from the fact that I'd rather this be, if, if Donald Trump, his career comes to an end, I'd rather it be decisively by voters than by a court ruling. I'm sort of, I'm with you in that. One reason why we have enabling statutes or other things on top of a constitutional pro- provision is that it makes the rules clear for people. If a court ruled that he engaged in an insurrection, if there was a conviction, if there was a statute that made, you know, these things clear. for These are going to be town clerks and state election officials making this call. You're basically asking A town clerk who, if the four of us with legal, you know, law degrees come to different determinations as to whether this is an insurrection, Mm -hmm. you're asking these individual local officials to read the Constitution and apply and, and analyze it and apply what Donald Trump did to decide whether or not to put him on the ballot. I just think that's unfeasible. and. Suing, suing them to force them to do it. I just don't think that that's the legal way to go either. So, just quickly, this is probably going to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. What do you guys think the SCOTUS will do? This is really my biggest fear: is that there has developed some in academia disagreement as to as to things like whether or not Donald Trump is an officer of the United States. So, I'm terrified that. That'll give the SCOTUS enough to try to avoid this by saying, oh, well, you know what? He's not an officer of the United States. So, And how terrifying that would be if the president is basically deemed to not be able to engage in an insurrection jail. That's like the ultimate Nixonism. <laughs> you know, it if, is. if the president does it, it's not illegal. What, what, what do you think the SCOTUS is going to do? I
3: think going to SCOTUS is terrifying for a lot of reasons and a lot of issues and this is certainly one of them because it can create a precedent that we don't want to live with and so that is scary politically as i said i view this differently than i do under the terms of the law i think within the intent of the framers within the language of the the actual language of the 14th amendment it applies and because the supreme court believes in the original intent, I think they would have to find that it is something that can be enforced and that he could be kept off the ballot. I don't know if politically that's the right way, but there's been some recent discussions about whether the court should ever take into account the political consequences um, of their decisions. And so that's a whole nother discussion that we could have about whether courts in general and the Supreme Court in particular should take into account what the public opinion is, and given how low their standing is in the uh, entire American population, whether they should be taking into account what the people think of their decisions.
0: Yeah, Barb and Joyce, what do you guys think?
1: Well, I don't think the Supreme Court is in the bag for Trump. I think that some of the justices have a profoundly conservative worldview that causes them to decide cases even at the expense of stare decisis and finding that the ends justifies the means sometimes, which we've seen in the Dobbs opinion in the Bruin case and some of these other things. But I don't think they're Trumpers. And so um, I think they will look at the case um, more based on how they view, um, you know, Government power, separation of powers, the role of courts. I could even see them saying that this is part of the political questions doctrine, and so they have no role in this. But um, I guess guess I'm not sure how they would come out, but I don't think it's safe to assume that they would simply come out in Trump's favor.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good observation, Barb, because if you are a textualist, a strict constructionist who believes that you should abide by the literal language of the Constitution, well, as Jill has made clear, the literal language of the Constitution suggests that there should be removal— and there's, I think, a strong argument, although I would, you know, personally, it would make sense for Congress to have passed at the same time that this amendment was passed, enabling legislation that directed the courts or secretaries of state or or whoever, how and, and in what situations to go about the process. It's self-executing under the terms of the Constitution. So, if they can get past Kim's hurdle, this notion of whether the president is an officer, maybe they would decide to enforce. And here I think is the little political notch on the belt. You know, the Trump appointees are gonna be on the court for the rest of their lives. They will outlive Trump, both politically and very likely in terms of his lifespan. And if they wanna go ahead and distance themselves from the way they got on the bench, this might be a neat little way to do it. So. Um, Although we sometimes think that this court is predictable and they can be very knee-jerk conservative on a lot of issues, I wonder if they might not surprise us. I think that this issue probably will reach them, right? It seems very likely to me that there could be contradictory decisions in Colorado and Minnesota, and there are other states with similar proceedings ongoing. Well, this week, the news has been full of the New York Attorney General's fraud case, the case that will very likely end Trump's ability to conduct real estate business in the state of New York. And this week in that ongoing trial, which has now been going on for weeks, we got a taste of testimony from the Trumps. First up was Donald Jr., who took the stand all cheery-faced and smiley, making jokes about um, the fact that he should have put on makeup for the cameras. But, Barb, what did you make of the substance of his testimony? Did he give himself a defense, or
1: was he helpful to the attorney general? Yeah, he also said to the courtroom sketch artist, make me look sexy. Oh,
0: Barb,
3: Impossible.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think he had to, he entered the courtroom, I think, with a decision uh, between two choices. One choice is to admit to fraud, that I knew these um, assets were being overstated, that I knew we were misrepresenting them to the tune of $2.2 billion, um, that I knew we were defrauding lenders and insurers. That's one choice, the other choice is to say, "I don't know nothing about nothing. I, I I I don't know," and he chose the second course. And although it may tend to show him as a less than hands-on business executive, it's probably better than the alternative. And so instead, he said things like, "We relied on our accountants to do wait for it accounting." <laughs> um, yeah, but it wasn't just accounting, of course. It was you know certifying that these. Uh, valuations were accurate to the best of his knowledge. And, you know, there are certainly things there that and it wasn't just accounting. It was also, um, uh, you know, appraisals and assessments and other kinds of things. So I think that's a convenient way of kind of uh, using the uh, the Reagan defense. You know how Reagan used to say, I didn't know anything. I, I left everything to my handlers. Uh, It's sort of the same thing. And so if this were a publicly traded corporation, they might have to really think twice about making those kinds of representations. But but because it's not, it's privately held, it's a family business. Who cares if he's a bad manager? So he, he went down that road. And I think as a result, he escaped fairly unscathed. I think Eric's a different story, but I think when it comes to Donald Trump Jr. playing dumb probably worked for him.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, their personal liability is a, a different question from whether the company gets dissolved or, or really has its certificates to do business yanked, which is what the judge has already said he's going to do. It's a very interesting and unusual setting because it's civil, not criminal. And, and as Barb points out, um, Jill, you know, Eric Trump was a little bit feistier than his, his brother, um, but I have the same question for you that I asked Barb. Were the specifics of his testimony helpful to the AG, or did he manage to damage her case in some way?
3: I actually think, aside from being feistier and more uncomfortable on the stand, that he did more good for Letitia James's case um, because he he took a position of things like I don't remember things that are not credible to say he wouldn't remember. He insisted that he pours concrete and doesn't (laughs) focus on appraisals. And I think it was your friend, Joyce, um, Mary Trump, who said he's never touched it. He couldn't even mix a bag of, I forgot what it's called, that you buy in the grocery store and you mix with water and it makes concrete. Um, which, did you I see mean, what Jimmy Kimmel
1: said about this? No, what he, did he say? He said he's a construction worker, just like the guy in the village people is a construction
3: worker. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, I mean, he, he was sort of ridiculous and not credible. And I think, you know, that that helps. And also, when he was cross-examined, um, uh, you know, by the, the state's attorney people, it was, or by the attorney general people, um, he was shown emails that showed correspondence about appraisals that he was part of. And there was another piece where he was shown to have been in a conference call about appraisals, you know, just a few years ago. So it's not credible that he didn't participate. He didn't know. Um, And so I, I do think that the case was made better on his testimony.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? There's still more to come. But Kim, before we get to that, I've got to ask you, what was the strategy on the Trump side of things about going after the the judge's law clerk? Trump Mm -hmm. did it on Truth Social. He got fined twice. Um, But it just didn't stop there. This week, the lawyers piled on. What do you make of that?
0: Yeah, he can't help himself. Well, before I say that, I, I would say, my father was actually a cement mason. And he went on to be secretary treasurer of the Summit Masons Union in Detroit, where I grew up. So I can confidently say I have seen more concrete people <laughs> than <laughs> Eric Trump. Like, nice. I'm quite certain that that is the case. But anyway, yes, attacking this law clerk, aside from being truly diabolical, which uh, Donald Trump has shown a propensity to do, as well as uh, he's shown a propensity to hire lawyers that will do the same I think that there are, uh, there are dual purposes here. One, Donald Trump is very motivated to cast not just this trial, but all of the trials and legal actions against him as politically motivated. And once there was found a picture of this clerk uh, posing— you know, with a selfie with an elected member of Congress who happens to be a Democrat. He thought he struck gold and he's going to milk that for all that it is worth um, in that case. And he is going to try to disparage anybody who is attached to any of these trials in the same way that he thinks he got uh, some political pay dirt in that case, because he really needs his supporters to believe that all of this is a political witch hunt against him because he needs that grievance in order to garner that support. I also think, more long game, he is trying to do anything he can to tamper with potential jurors in cases where there are jurors. So there's not jurors in this trial. This is a bench trial. But I think he wants to taint... uh, The potential jury pool the same way he did when, you know, he talked about how awful uh, D.C. is, you know, and how terrible New York City is now and and everything else. That's got to be the – if there's any strategy beyond him just being awful, those two are probably what he's up to. Yeah, I mean – it seems to me,
2: you know, the lawyers went after the clerk um, in court this week. First, Alina Haba asked the judge to stop talking to his clerk, saying that when she was a law clerk, she didn't do that kind of thing in court, which seemed really silly because the whole point of having your clerk in the courtroom yeah, is so that there? they can, you know, <laughs> they can give you notes about, well, judge, here's, here's the case that he's referring to or whatever it is that you're asking your clerk to give you. And then Chris Keyes has this just bizarre exchange with him, um, you know, where he defends himself against the charge of misogyny, saying that he has a daughter— He has a daughter, like some people have black friends, right? I mean, that was my reaction. Or they have not
1: a racist bone in their body, right? But
2: but let me just say, you know, (laughs) that's the kind of thing, if I were a judge, I would have sent the lawyers to the state bar for disciplinary proceedings for attacking Mm. my clerk in court after being told not to. After a gag order that applied to them as well as to their client was put in place, I would have just said, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to refer you to the State Bar for disciplinary proceedings and let God sort it out. Um, But there's more, because next week, both Donald Trump and Ivanka will testify— Trump had that quick turn on the witness stand when the judge questioned him before uh, imposing the second fine for violating the gag order. So, Barb, did you learn anything from Trump's demeanor on the witness stand that's informative about what you expect
1: to see next week? Well, that was very interesting. He was very grumpy during that time. He was um, not at all cautious, which I think is a really dangerous mode for testimony, and I think he lied, right? He said, <laughs> oh, uh, I wasn't talking about your clerk. Uh, I was talking about Michael Cohen. Yeah, that's it, Michael Cohen. And the judge said, what are you talking about? He wasn't even sitting in the same line of sight. You said next to. Um, so I think if Donald Trump comes in that unprepared, that, um, uh, you know, d- d- speaking through his uh, his rage as opposed to his reason. Uh, I think it could be disastrous for him. So I think, uh, can you just imagine being his lawyer? They've got to do a lot of prep. He's so undisciplined in what he says. They've just got to remind him you're under oath and you've got to think before you testify because I don't think he did that in those few minutes he was on the stand with the judge last week when talking about his comments about the clerk. Yeah, I'm this sorry, seems I keep like-
0: laughing at, at things that I think are laughable and maybe I shouldn't, but the idea that he'll listen to his lawyer's instructions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That is worth a laugh. I'm, I mean, it's just, it's sort of crazy. I think we'll be all eyes on that testimony when it takes place. Um, hey, Jill, the court is also going to hear from Ivanka next week, which I think is a little bit risky. She's never been deposed.
3: The AG doesn't know what she's going to say. What do you think is going on? Well, I think we can learn a lot from her testimony before the January 6th committee, where she was quite willing to go against the family picture and testimony. And so I think she may end up being a good witness for them, but you are absolutely right. Uh, This reminds me of having to question Rosemary Woods without knowing what she was going to say and having to violate the first rule of any trial practice, yeah. which is don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. So it's it's clearly risky, but I think in general, we're going to see her telling the truth. She's dropped out of being part of his orbit, being part of his uh, campaign. And so I think she may be somebody who will hurt. the The other thing we have to keep in mind is that she was dismissed as a defendant because her role in this preceded the statute of limitations running. And so she couldn't be charged in this case, but I think she still has very relevant evidence because she was very much part of a lot of the charged actions in this case. So even though her role was out, she still is very involved in the company. She gets a lot of money from them for a lot of things. And so I think she will be um, an interesting witness, again, In the same way as we don't know exactly how Donald Trump is going to do, although I bet that if any of us was a betting person, we would bet that his normal behavior, which is undisciplined and he can't help himself, will prevail, I think that uh, I would feel differently about Ivanka and that she will be a better witness for the prosecution.
2: You know, it's really a curiosity to me. I feel like, to your point, that she was dismissed from the case because her conduct didn't go into the period that the AG can go after. I feel like maybe they have something that they can jam her up with, some sort of a document or something, where if she takes the stand and lies, then they can put that in front of her and clearly show that she's lying, which, you know, gives her the choice of either committing perjury or or saying stuff that helps the attorney general out. But I'm very interested to see how this plays out. I'm a, I'm a big adherent to the rule of not asking a question that you don't know the answer to at trial. So I feel like they must have something compelling um, to be willing to violate it.
1: Um, Whatever they do, don't ask you to try on the gloves.
2: (laughs) Right. Maybe she'll try on her copyrights. Um, (laughs) Hey, Kim, the judge has already ruled against the Trumps on the fraud issue and they could appeal. Right. But But this is essentially going to end their uh, ability to conduct real estate business in New York. They'll face significant fines. Given all of the legal impact, how do you think it plays out in the political sphere? You dabble there more than the rest of us.
0: Do you think it'll help Trump or hurt him? Yeah, I mean, Trump's reputation as inflated as he's made it over the past decades has been about being this, you know, successful businessman that he has all this money, you know, he get nothing makes him angrier than claiming that he is worth or his company is worth less uh than he wants people to believe that it is. So this is sort of his kryptonite, right? This he was this big <laughs> shot and you take that away from him and what does he have? And in a way that's why I think that the the penalty here is really perfect when you break the rules, not just once or twice. I mean, you heard the people who are testifying. This is basically has been his mo from the beginning. He cheats, he defrauds, he files for bankruptcy, and he has hence um, to, up to now avo- completely avoided accountability for it. You know, it, it. This this whole question reminds me of a piece that Ruth Marcus, who I think is brilliant uh, at the Washington Post, wrote. Um, about this case. And she was asking, which I think is a valid question, whether the penalty, which is basically ending his business, ending uh, the Trump organization, fits the charge. And she worried that it is too much because it would be unprecedented for for a business this large in New York to be completely shut down by a civil trial brought by the AG. And she wrote... Um, She wrote that while she loved to see Trump have to write a big check, she says forcing the sale or other disposition of his business as the judge ordered seems both unnecessary and unduly punitive. And she points to the fact that it's never been done before. Well, nobody's probably been this big of a fraudster in New York (laughs) City before either. You know, that's just like saying, oh, well, you know, a former president has never been charged with a crime before. Well, a former president didn't commit the kind of, crimes that Donald Trump is accused of committing. So sometimes there's a first time for everything. And I, again, think that the parallel here is what happened with his charity when he had the Trump Foundation and he was using it basically to pay his legal fees and all kinds of other things which were illegal in, under New York State. The AG brought a suit and now neither he nor his kids can not only that that charity got Charity, I'm using air quotes, got shut down, and none of them can <laughs> serve on the board of any charity. That's what you get when you break the rules. You can't play anymore. And I think that that's exactly the right thing. And whatever pol- political consequences come, so be it. You know, that is such a great point that you make about the first
2: time, because I was reading the, the gag order appeal. Trump has appealed the gag order in the D.C. case last night. And his lawyers write this brief and and they're, you know, just pounding into the ground. This has never been done. No presidential candidate has ever had a gag order imposed. And I'm like taking the paper and smacking it into the wall saying, and no former president who's running again has ever committed this many crimes and refused to keep his mouth shut about witnesses, right? Every time Mm -hmm. they make that argument, no one's ever been treated by Trump. My response is no one's ever acted like Trump, and right. something has to be done about it. So I think your answer is the perfect one.
3: So we just mentioned that this last thing was Donald Trump's kryptonite. So we're going to go from that to cryptocurrency. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Samuel Nicely Bankman done. Fried.
2: See what you did there. That was <laughs> nice.
3: <laughs> Samuel Bankman-Fried, a 31-year-old FTX founder and former chief executive and former billionaire, was found guilty of orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history. He faces 110 years in prison. The verdict caps a year-long saga that took Bankman Freed from a penthouse in the Bahamas
0: to a shared cell in Brooklyn. Kim, what is the case about? So I am not an expert on cryptocurrency. I am still not entirely sure what it is. But the beauty (laughs) about uh, SBF, how he was known, about his scam is that even though it took place in the world of you know, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and all of that. It was really an old-fashioned shell game, right? So he essentially, he founded something called Alameda Research, which was basically a hedge fund for crypto, if you think of it that way. They invested, they bought crypto from one exchange and sold it on another where the cost was different and made a profit from doing that and began taking people's uh, investments so that they could do the same. Well, along the way, he and the other folks at Alameda decided, oh, you know, crypto is traded on these exchanges, right? So why don't we start an exchange now? That would be like, (laughs) A bank, you know, Bank of America said, oh, instead of trading on the New York Stock Exchange, why don't we make our own exchange and trade on that, right? Would regulators allow that? Never, ever. But that's the whole (laughs) point of crypto is that it's unregulated. So they were essentially already self-dealing. Well, that wasn't enough. Once they realized that on this exchange, they controlled the value of this little cryptocurrency that they made up. They started using that to essentially cook their books and to take their clients' money, not invest it, and use it just to further their businesses. It was like the Bernie off of crypto and live this lavish lifestyle, hang out in the Bahamas, live this great life. And once their clients started asking for the money back... They realized it was a shell game. It all came crashing down, and they all lost their money. So it was a big old, old-fashioned, fraudulent scam. Definitely the Bernie Madoff of modern times and
3: a very traditional, old-fashioned fraud. So, Joyce, talk about what the witnesses and uh, Documents have shown in the prosecution's case and whether the defense made any inroads into that case when they cross-examined witnesses.
2: Yeah, so I should say that, like Kim, I'm not an expert in cryptocurrency. (laughs) Um, I think it's fair
3: to say none of us is. And
2: I actually had the great good fortune when we were in Texas for the Tribune Festival. I had dinner with Ben McKenzie, who most people know as an actor who was on The O.C. and, and other shows. But he actually is a crypto expert, and he has been sitting in the trial while it's been ongoing. So I had the great good fortune to... Um, do an interview with him tonight for Substack for my newsletter. So if anybody wants to see that, I'll drop a link in the show notes. He actually explains cryptocurrency, and I'm, I'm very grateful to him for the insight. Um, but I think it is interesting to note that this case in many ways is less about crypto than it is just about garden variety fraud. And the fundamental issue I think that you're asking here is, should Sam um have taken you know should bankman freed have taken the witness stand? So the prosecution did something here that prosecutors really like to do. They flipped key co-conspirators. they flipped co-defendants and turned them into the government's witnesses. And that was very effective because they were able to walk the jury through the scheme, explain what had been done, and particularly as regards Alameda, where this just crazy multi-billion dollar line of credit was extended that far exceeded any other lines of credit. I think that they made a lot of headway with these witnesses who, you know, I think the parallel—because we all look at this case, it's a fraud case, you think about about Trump— In the Trump cases, there is no one from the inner circle. We don't know that a Mark Meadows or a Rudy Giuliani or an Ivanka is testifying against Trump, but that's what the government had in this case. They had those high-caliber lieutenants who were were very effective, and the defense was not able— to effectively cross-examine them. They tried to insinuate that they had gotten very good deals that kept them out of prison, but on the stand, these witnesses really held their own, explaining that if they lied, they would lose their deal, and the government had plenty of evidence to discern whether they were lying or not. I think that was compelling to the jury, and, and given how quickly the jury came back,
3: apparently the jury had no trouble believing them. Exactly, and all of them, were very clear in pointing the finger at Samuel Bankman fried They said, he was the one who told us to do this. He knew everything we were doing. So it was a pretty strong case. So then, Barb, talk about what the defense case is. You know, they had only two witnesses, and then they put him, the defendant, on the stand, which is something that is very seldom done and has some high risk with it. What did you think of that strategy, and was there any alternative they could have used?
1: Yeah, you know, I I tell my law students, the most common defense in a criminal case is no defense. It is simply to argue that the prosecution has failed to make out its case, using cross-examination, as Joyce just said, and then arguing to the jury that the prosecution had failed on one or more elements of the offense to make out the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a high standard. Um, In this case, it it appears they concluded that's not going to cut it. <laughs> I saw the calling of Sam bankman fried as kind of a desperation call. You know, sometimes if uh, the defense feels like, you know, it, I think we got a shot here. It went, I think we made scored some good points on cross-examination. I think we'll just argue to the jury. I think they realized that was a loser, that the only way to uh, snatch victory from the draws of defeat were to throw, uh, you know, the Hail Mary shot. They had two other witnesses. They had... Uh, the lawyer for Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas, a woman named Crystal Roll. They had a database expert named Joseph Pimbley, but you know they, they just made some kind of minor points. So it's really all riding on Bankman-Fried himself to testify. And I think they probably gambled that, you know, he's this charismatic guy. He's been able to be us his way to success. Let's put him on the stand. And you do see that sometimes with fraudsters. They think they can charm their way out of a criminal case. But the prosecutor, her name's Danielle Sassoon, former clerk for Justice Scalia, was just ready for him, you know. Um, he, she caught him in contradictions. He would say things that contradicted prior statements, and she she had done her homework. She brought the receipts, and she would contradict him and said, you know, on direct you said X uh, during an interview, you said Y. You know, where well, you're lying then, you're lying now. So she was able to do that quite a bit, and then she got him to say hundred and forty times, I don't recall, uh, and then to also show that well in an email he certainly recalled it you know not too long ago so <laughs> i think it was really pretty devastating for him as i said i think it was a long shot they they were hoping that uh maybe this was a last ditch effort to save his his case and i think it didn't it didn't uh, succeed because um he is very very guilty and he has some very
3: skilled prosecutors proving it to the jury and only 4 hours or less of deliberation. So clearly it didn't work. So Kim, the next step is sentencing. It's been set for March 28th. He faces 110
0: years, but besides sentencing on March 28th, what else is in store for him? Yeah, technically he's facing a second trial. There are still five pending charges uh, against him. Uh, They were severed from the proceedings that we were talking about. Since there was a conviction in these first cases, my guess is that a judge may or even the prosecutors may pass on those prosecutions because um, he, he also has to be, as you said, sentenced on March 28th. Um, the total of all of the the a potential prison time he faces as up to about uh, over a century uh, of <laughs> prison time. And the experts I've been hearing say they expect him, they expect a pretty hefty sentence or, you know, maybe... F- 15, 20 years for something like that. You know, Bernie Madoff died in prison um, and it's akin to that. So my guess is that there probably won't be another trial, but he's going to have to prepare to try to uh, say to the judge why he should not be put away for decades. He's at this point, he uh, according to a statement from his lawyers, maintaining his innocence. But when it comes time to sentencing, you're going to have to switch from maintaining your innocence to professing your uh, contrition um, and saying that you're a changed person and you want a second chance. So I highly, uh, if I was his attorney, I would be advising him to do that. And
3: Judge Kaplan, who's been a terrific judge in this case, has asked the prosecutors to decide by February 1st whether they will proceed. And I agree with you, Kim. It, 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 he will never get consecutive sentencing right. if he gets anything significant, which he will in this case. So, um, Joyce, a quick question about the advice of consul defense, which he tried to raise and it was rejected. And I'm just wondering, because Donald Trump is trying to raise that same defense, what you think it's going to impact? You know, what do you think about it in the Trump cases?
2: Yeah, I was really fascinated by how this played out here because Friedman Banks wanted to testify that he had relied on his lawyer's advice about business practices to undercut the fraud claims. And Judge Kaplan largely disallowed that, um, except in one very limited circumstance involving records retention. He said that evidence of reliance on counsel would have, in his judgment, been confusing, and highly prejudicial, which is one of the ways that a judge can keep evidence out at trial. And that's a discretionary call with judges. It can only be reversed on appeal if the judge abuses his discretion. Judge Kaplan made a good record here. And that becomes very interesting in the context of Trump, because for one thing, he would essentially have to take the witness stand to make out that defense of relying on the advice of counsel. You know, he's really the only one who can say he did. And perhaps this case is a cautionary tale about people who are overconfident taking the witness stand in their own defense. But even beyond that, it, you know, I think it wouldn't get this far in the Trump case for this simple reason. You cannot rely on the advice of counsel if the counsel you're trying to rely on is your co-conspirator in the crimes that, were, that you're charged with, and the government could move to exclude any mention of the defense pre-trial in a motion in limine, On that basis, I think it would win as a legal matter and be kept out. And so you wouldn't even have to get to the point the judge got to here about ruling on admissibility at trial.
0: And that's in limine for those who are listening, not, um, not Lemonade.
2: Um. (laughs) I know that's one of those bad things that we do as lawyers, right? (laughs) In limine is just a motion that's filed in advance of trial, usually to determine admissibility of evidence. And I am bad to throw that around. So I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) From now on, I'll try to
3: explain. I love Latin. It's music to my ears. I love hearing it. But it just does mean to limit the evidence. And and (laughs) Barb, a quick question for you, um, which is Samuel Benckman-Fried was indicted for orchestrating this gigantic financial fraud. And he was indicted in December of 2022. Mm -hmm. He was tried and convicted less than a year later. So the same thing happened in Watergate where we went from indictment to conviction in just about a year. And many of the followers on threads are asking me, so why are the Trump cases taking so long? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good question. Um, Joyce and I were sort of chuckling about this, about the difference between the work of a U.S. Attorney's Office and the work of Maine Justice. You know, like any bureaucracy, I guess Maine Justice just has so many layers of review uh, that sometimes it really slows things down. U.S. Attorney's offices can be much more nimble. Um, you know, it's a handful of people who are cranking out these cases, and it's uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing to behold. I also, though, in fairness, will say that charging a former president. Is much more fraught with peril than charging a fraud case. And so, I think it's understandable that it needs to be vetted, that you want to have your best appellate experts looking into every angle. You know, the crimes against Sam Bankman-Fried are pretty run-of-the-mill, even though the cryptocurrency is a sophisticated and new type of a- investment. Investment fraud is something that goes back to the Ponzi scheme, you know, of the old days. So as the U.S. attorney there, Damian Williams, said, you know, this is this is an old-fashioned kind of a crime. Um, the stuff with Donald Trump is pretty innovative. You know, nobody has charged people with uh, trying to steal an election before. So I think in their defense, it's understandable it would take a certain amount of time, but
3: I I still think that they uh, were a little slow getting out of the gate and we're paying the price now. Yeah, although I I will point out, of course, that President Nixon was an an unindicted co-conspirator in the case. So it's not the same as directly charging him as the defendant, but it it still, it took... 10 months. And we went to the Supreme Court in that time too. So I do hope that we can catch up on the time of this.
1: And now comes our favorite part of the show, the part where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com, at or thread or tweet us using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our threads feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Mary in St. Louis, Missouri, who asks, Is there a database that provides information about laws and requirements to trigger red flags of gun owners for each state? Joyce, what do you think about that one?
2: You know, I'm so glad to have a chance to answer this question. So thank you for asking, Mary, because this is something, especially in the wake of Lewiston, that we all need to be aware of since these laws vary from state to state. The best place that I know of to go and look, it's easy because there's an interactive map, is everytown.org, everytown.org. Everytown.org literally has a section on their website that talks about extreme risk laws. They call it that instead of red flag laws. And you can go in and push on your state to see what the laws are like there. So thank you for asking. We all need to be better educated
1: about this. Oh, that's very good information. All right, our next question comes to us from V, who asks, in Jenna Ellis' plea, they talk about making a note specifically stating that none of what she's charged with is a crime of moral turpitude. What does that mean in this context? Jill, can you explain a crime
3: of moral turpitude? I can, but I'll talk about what does it mean in this context. It means that she won't be automatically disbarred for having pled guilty to these particular crimes. Um, Moral turpitude, many of us would say, is violating your oath as an officer of the court, which she clearly did. Um, But generally, they're described as crimes that are offensive and vile or insulting to one's moral compass. It's assault, sexual assault, child abuse, neglect, kidnapping, murder, manslaughter. So the crimes that she pled guilty to are not in that category and so she will not automatically be disbarred but she still may be disbarred and definitely deserves to be
1: and our final question comes to us from the melodically named oi james yo um who asks from a legal perspective what elements would you all like to see in a law to prevent or stop political gerrymandering hmm. kim what do you think about that
0: i would love a constitutional amendment Mm -hmm. That outlaws political (laughs) gerrymandering because I think it's just as, for all the reasons that we've stated on many episodes of Hashtag Sisters in Law, it is anti-democratic. It tends to uh, be a proxy for racial gerrymandering. And it's just bad. Everybody's vote should count. Everybody should be confident that their vote should count, regardless of their party or lack thereof, regardless of any other classification. So I would love it to be outlawed constitutionally. If not, I would love every state to bar it because states still have the ability to bar it. Uh, Whether or not federal courts can take it up as a political question, as the Supreme Court has ruled they cannot do. There are a lot of ways to get rid of it. And I hope one day we do it.
1: Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly atkins Store Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQueen. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Please support this week's sponsors, Honey Love, Moink, Osea Malibu, and Aura. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. You can also go online and find our newest merch, the Sisters In Law mug, Get yours soon while the hot beverage season is here. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law.
2: But so seriously, my husband really loves scary movies. Mm. And our, our boys, when they were little, I mean, we're talking four years old, I would walk in and they would be sitting on their dad's lap watching stuff like Predator, and as oh a result, all—I I, really, right? Like I would be like, "What are you doing?" And our kids love horror movies. All four of them, they'll sit around and watch them with Bob, and they terrify me. I, I just can't sit in the room and watch them.